You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Hi, Solving Climate Naturally listeners. We're trying something new today. We're bringing live experiences to you on the podcast. So New York Climate Week is one of the biggest climate gatherings of the year in the United States. It brings together thousands of people for a week full of different events, ranging from panels and conferences to smaller working sessions, side meetings and cocktail hours. Organizations from all sectors attend to discuss topics ranging from corporate sustainability to carbon markets to low carbon cement. We wanted to bring Climate Week 2023 live to our listeners, so I bought a small microphone on Amazon and brought it with me on Amtrak train to New York City. I also enlisted a field correspondent for this episode, a friend and fellow Stanford Business School grad, Morrison Mast, to help debrief after the week. Morrison, you and I met and became friends while at Stanford. We both have conservation NGO experience, and I remember joking that each class has that one person who came from the nature conservation world. We both worked together at NCX and have since gone on to other things. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, Morrison. Great to have you join us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Julia. So before we get into it, do you mind sharing a bit about your background and how you got into nature-based solutions? Sure, Julian. Thanks again for having me on. I got my start working as a field biologist, working on everything from wild dog research in Botswana to sea turtle research in Panama right out of undergrad. Uh, lots of work with indigenous communities, community-based conservation projects. And then I worked in the conservation travel space for many years, bringing groups of students out to the field to volunteer with wildlife conservation organizations before turning my focus to conservation finance and nature-based solutions in the past few years. And that's when I met you at Stanford and dove headfirst into this nature-based carbon market space. And recently I've been helping start a company focused on developing high quality carbon removal through silvopasture in Colombia. And that's where I am right now. So you'll have to excuse some of the background traffic noises that you might be hearing here. Yeah, Morrison, I joked that if this goes well as our first uh, on-the-ground field correspondence, you'll have to do an episode capturing some audio from Columbia on the ground there. Well, so glad to have you here, and thanks so much for reporting on behalf of Solving Climate Naturally. So in this episode, Morrison and I are going to share our impressions and takeaways from Climate Week 2023 and share some clips from the conversations that we had there. We're a bit removed from New York Climate Week at this point, one of the downsides of Solving Climate Naturally as a side gig. But we still thought it would be valuable to share takeaways and live recordings from the week, as well as some personal reflections now more than a month out. The three main takeaways are, one, Climate Week should be rebranded to Nature and Climate Week. Two, Indigenous and local communities are increasingly at the table and have a critical role to play in advancing nature-based solutions. And three, there are real concerns about the future of the carbon market, but also hope that those can be overcome. I spent most of my time at the Nature Positive Hub set up by Nature for Climate. There were people there from NGOs, carbon project developers, investment firms, companies, and indigenous communities. It was a microcosm of actors working on nature-based solutions, representing the breadth of stakeholders now engaged in this arena. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It's, it's really cool and all too rare, I think, to be in a place where institutional investors, tech companies, U.S. government representatives, indigenous leaders are all in the building at the same time talking about the role of nature and driving climate action and the challenges and opportunities therein. And I have to say something that was really present was the sheer magnitude of the problem and the pace at which these solutions need to scale in order to meet a lot of the commitments 
that are due at the end of the decade and to really live up to the promise of scale of, of natural climate solutions as our main mechanism to address climate. And one quote um, that I wanted to bring to the top here really sticks out about the scale and the urgency of the challenge was by Mark Wishney. He's the head of landscape capital and the chief sustainability officer at BTG Pactual Timberland Investing Group. And he was sitting on a, on a panel on investing in forests. And he noted that a third of climate mitigation potential can be delivered by nature by 2030. And I'll quote him here. He said, to deliver that benefit, we have to work at really large scales. We have to do a lot in seven years. Essentially, 80% of what's been planted since the beginning of time has to be planted before 2030. And that, you know, you could hear an audible gasp, even from the seasoned practitioners in this space and just people looking around like, yeah, that's a very big challenge. So I think that was on the mind of everyone. It's just this very critical moment where there's been a lot of criticism towards carbon markets, but they're still the most promising solution to get where we need to be. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Morrison, that the clock is ticking and we're at 2023. And if you're going to be relying on nature restoration in, in addition to protection and better management of these ecosystems, we have to start planting now and at a much, much bigger scale. And there were definitely conversations about how can finance and different forms of finance be catalyzed to do that, as well as the role of policy and other uh, mm -hmm. stakeholders in working together to make that happen. And I think it'd be great for us to hear a little bit from Lucy Almond, Chair of Nature for Climate, talk a little bit more about Nature for Climate, the Nature Positive Hub, and its role in bringing these different actors together to talk about the urgency of this challenge and what can be done to ensure that we can move faster and bigger. All right, I'm here with Lucy Almond, Chair of Nature for Climate. Thanks so much, Lucy, for taking the time to chat with us. Yes. Hey, pleasure. Always pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> I'm curious to hear your perspectives on Nature Positive Hub. What are you hoping people take away from the Hub today and tomorrow and the next day? Great. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the second time that we've done the Nature Positive Hub during New York Climate Week, and it's like, it's so different this time around from how it was back in 2019 when we first did it. And primarily because the audience is so different this time around. So there's many more corporate people in the coming into the nature-related events. There's many more finance sector people. Also, we have more Indigenous-led events and communities. So the fact that that movement has grown for me is a really good thing. But basically, the reason we put the Nature Positive Hub on is really to try and broaden the community of actors who understand what Nature Positive is. So rather than it just being that kind of woolly vision statement goal, the, the events that are happening this week are really, really specific, detail-oriented events about how you implement Nature Positive. So, for example, in the event I was just in that was being run by Business for Nature, they had 12 different sectors of companies who are, have been working on the nature positive roadmap. And so they were all talking about the very specific actions they have to take within their companies to help make nature positive a reality. One clear takeaway for me, and someone else mentioned this, was a real feeling of this not just being Climate Week, but Nature and Climate Week given the amount of programming and interest in nature, not just at the Nature Positive Hub, but at events throughout the city. One big driver of the focus on nature this year was the release of the task force for nature-related financial disclosures recommendations, or TNFD. The task force for climate-related financial disclosures, TCFD, has been tremendously influential in driving increased disclosure within the private sector for climate risk 
as well as informing public policy around climate disclosure, there's a similar hope and expectation that TNFD could lead to corporations increasingly focused on their businesses' exposure to and influence on nature-related risks, motivating them to act to address these like TCFD did in the climate space. I talked to Eric Wilburn, a fellow Stanford grad and nature-based solutions expert, for his impressions of a panel at the Nature Positive Hub that discussed TNFD. Here are some takeaways from that session from Eric. Well, it's focused on really corporate action on nature. And TNFD was one of the groups represented. They had the science-based targets for nature there as well. And I think one of the fascinating points that was made, well, questions was how complex it is to measure and report on nature. And, you know, the panelists, four of whom, which were corporates, kind of were reflecting that that's what makes it interesting is the complexity. And while it can be a bit more difficult, you know, and it's not a ton of carbon, it's not fungible, it's not the same anywhere in the world, but it actually makes it much more engaging. So they found it in a lot of ways, especially the corporates that have value chains, supply chains based on land, you know, activity, that it's been much easier to get stakeholders, both internal and external to the company involved and engaged on nature, because it's much more tangible, you can feel it, you know, it's more motivating. Um, so we still have the challenge of how do we actually translate that into these frameworks. But I think between SBTN and TNFD and the whole Nature Positive Initiative, we're really making some progress. So what's the motivation of these companies that they say for getting involved in TNFD? Yeah, I think um, one of the speakers. This speaker was Alex Wittenberg, Partner Insurance and Asset Management, Climate and Sustainability at Oliver Weinman. Was actually a consultant that worked at the intersection of insurance um, and uh, climate, but has been focused much more on nature. And his main point was it's actually entirely within, specifically for insurance companies, you know, their mitigation activities, you know, a lot of which mitigating climate is it's a lot of the nature kind of positive initiatives, actions can be huge mitigation events for their exposure. And I think corporates are looking at it the same way and they're saying, well, we have pretty material risks to our supply chain, to our value chain, and we need to be able to really, well, we're motivated internally to take action on those, whether or not it's you know, from top down or bottom up. That's interesting. So it's kind of like with Task Force for Client Related Financial Disclosure, which was initially sort of a risk assessment and risk disclosure for investors. It's a similar approach in the TNFD side of things. It's really understanding the materiality of the risks that are opposed to businesses if they don't take stock of nature and their impacts on nature and vice versa. Yeah, and I think this is where it's really beautiful what's happening, uh, the nature positive movement learning from the climate movement, because already, you know, it took a while for TCFD and the science-based targets initiative to link up and kind of be the kind of like first step and second step, but already TNFD and SPTN are working together to actually look at those risks, measure those risks, and then have SPTN already looking at how do we set targets around those risks. And so I think that's what really excites me about the movement around, well, nature in general is we're starting to make these uh, connections between different entities, different stakeholders much, much earlier in the conversation and much more cohesively and not duplicating efforts. Another driver of the increased focus on nature was the commitment, the global commitment to 30 by 30 goals or protecting 30% of the world's biodiversity and lands and waters that came out of COP2015 or the United Nations Biodiversity Conference in Montreal last December. I spoke with Roman Chibiniak, the nature-based solutions and private sector lead at WRI, who mentioned this specifically. 
Yeah, I think this is an exciting event because one of the things uh, that's happening is this is coming in the aftermath of the 30 by 30 nature commitment at the last Center for Biological University uh, conference. And so one of the things I'm looking for is how are the biodiversity targets and commitments and projects on the ground going to interact with all the carbon projects on the ground. And I actually just had a conversation with someone working in a high forest, low deforestation rate landscape in Papua. And that, I guess, is like another thing that's front of mind. How do we incorporate those better into the carbon markets or find sufficient financing for those important areas we all know need to be protected? How do you think about the trade-offs then? Are there trade-offs with you know, advancing carbon outcomes and biodiversity outcomes? How should companies think about managing and navigating the role of Yeah, I mean, in my eyes, the, the smart companies are going to be looking at carbon, biodiversity, and also benefits for people, right? I mean, these are all global goals. The achievement of which is outside of any individual company or any country's rubric or authority. And so one thing you could do if you're also focusing on biodiversity is, you know, there might still be deforestation in the landscape or elsewhere, but you will know that you have contributed at least towards that target. You know, it's a little bit more difficult perhaps uh, in terms of atmospheric emissions, if you're reducing emissions somewhere, you know, they can more easily be uh, let into the atmosphere somewhere else. So I think it kind of provides companies an assurance that they're providing other benefits uh, in terms of uh, biodiversity and livelihoods. So as you can hear from Roman's takeaways, there's more and more expectations put on companies not only to advance climate outcomes, but balance these with biodiversity and community outcomes as well. But this is not an easy task to balance climate outcomes with biodiversity and community outcomes, as you could hear from what Roman said. And one of the things that conservation NGOs are increasingly focused on is supporting companies to achieve that balance through the development of nature-based solutions projects. So Morrison, what are some of your takeaways from the week? One of the things that I was particularly inspired to see was the focus on the critical role of indigenous and local communities in protecting nature and scaling natural climate solutions. The backdrop to all of this climate week, which on Sunday, I I didn't get there until Monday, so I didn't get to participate in this, but there was a huge indigenous-led climate march in New York City that, that kicked off the week. Indigenous activists came from all over the world, coming to demand an end to fossil fuels and a more prominent seat at the table in climate negotiations for indigenous communities. And all over Climate Week, we heard the voices of indigenous leaders calling for more uh, inclusion in climate talks. Uh, One key fact that was highlighted during a couple of sessions specifically on this issue was just how much of the world's forest and peatlands actually sit in the territorial lands of indigenous people. Uh, Indigenous peoples are stewards of nearly one-fifth of the total carbon sequestered by tropical and subtropical forests. And this is estimated to be about 218 gigatons, according to a 2019 study by the Rights and Resources Initiative. And indigenous territories encompass 40% of protected areas globally. Indigenous communities also tend to be most at risk from the negative impacts of climate change and the destruction of these ecosystems. So empowering these communities is as much about fighting climate change and preserving biodiversity as it is protecting the very fabric of these communities' unique cultures. One of the sponsors of the Nature Positive Hub was Nia Taro, an organization devoted to elevating the voices of indigenous advocates. On a panel they hosted, we got to hear directly from leaders of indigenous communities. On this topic, I want to play back the story of a woman named Nemonte Nenkimo, who is the founder of Amazon Frontlines and Sable Alliance. 
She's been the Warani community in Ecuador that's fought against oil extraction by the state-run oil company in Ecuador in Yasuni National Park, which is one of the most biodiverse forests on earth and sits in the Warani traditional territory. And here, we're going to hear the voice of Nemonte's interpreter since Nemonte addressed the panel in Spanish. And so I worked with a coalition by people on a campaign to educate the Ecuadorian public and to tell the story of what our territory, what this forest means to us as indigenous people, what the importance of nature is for us. Because for us, this forest, nature, gives us life. It gives life to us, the indigenous peoples that live there, and it gives life to the entire world. And so we launched a campaign, and the focus of that campaign was to bring together all Ecuadorians, indigenous and non-indigenous, to join together because we can't just be indigenous peoples on our own fighting to defend these lands, we need support. I get emotional when I think about what we achieved. Sometimes I start crying. So important, it really shows two things. That together, we can confront the biggest threats. Together, we are stronger. It also shows that there is hope. Hope when we might look out and see a climate crisis, but then we have these achievements and they show that together, when we're together, we can, we can win. And that should give everybody here hope, you know, because we look at 10 years of oil extraction in a place like Ecuador, and we can ask, what has changed? The government, the oil companies, they spread this message of oil is development. But for us as indigenous peoples, it's not development. It's not quality of life. For us, air, clean water, clean forest, that's what quality of life is. And so we've been fighting against that corrupt message. And, and through, our, through our struggle, Ecuadorians voted to protect. It's so powerful to hear Nemonte and indigenous leaders firsthand. And that was one of the amazing parts about Climate Week is being able to be there in the room with these indigenous leaders. And a key takeaway that I had from that panel was that indigenous peoples are increasingly being recognized as critical to the climate conversation. And that while climate change is a global problem, the unique needs and priorities of local indigenous communities and local indigenous peoples have to be considered at the local level that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution here. A hundred percent, Julia. Yeah, there's, I think, a lot of opportunity here, too, to work with communities from both the global South and the global North. Both Central and South America and Canada and, and the U.S. have massive areas of indigenous uh, stewarded land. And in a very real sense, it would be impossible to leverage the power of forests to keep carbon locked up without directly working with indigenous land stewards. We are that 40% number at the top of this section here. And it's really a huge amount of, of potential. And another thing that was very clear was that there's a lot to learn from indigenous communities in how to manage areas for the long-term protection of nature and carbon storage and make this part of long-term policy. I want to play a clip here from Vicky Tauli Corpus. She's an indigenous policy leader and the former UN Special Rapporteur for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. She talked about how the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is a very important policy instrument, is moving from just safeguarding rights to including Indigenous people in finding solutions to climate change and nature loss. The progress that I'm seeing now is moving beyond this concept of safeguards towards recognizing that Indigenous peoples hold the solution. So it's not just a matter of, we are the UN, we're going to design a solution and oh, we need to consult indigenous people because we want to make sure that we're not violating their rights. We have gotten to the point where the world is so desperate for, for solutions that they look 
and places where the biodiversity is rich, where carbon remains on the ground or in the trees or in the oceans. And they say, oh, we need to partner with these people. And that's what we tried to do at the Convention on Biological Diversity. You know, it's clear from these and other panelists' comments that their main priority isn't even climate or biodiversity often. It's about sovereignty, you know, rights to their land and preserving their way of life. And I think that speaks to why it's so critical to understand the actual motivations and priorities of the group and the individuals in that group, not assuming a one-size-fits-all approach to engaging Indigenous peoples or that climate and biodiversity are even the main motivators. I had the opportunity to speak with Nara Barre the first female leader for the coordination of the indigenous organizations of the Brazilian Amazon, or COIAB, one of the largest indigenous organizations in South America, who now leads Niantero's work in Brazil. My name is Nara of the Barre people. I come from the northwest of the state of Amazonas, bordering Colombia and Venezuela in the Brazilian Amazon. I'm here during Climate Week for the first time to echo the voices of indigenous peoples to ensure that we have more space in decision-making that involves returns for all indigenous territories and for the planet. At this moment in Brazil, the federal Supreme Court is hearing a case on the time frame law, which stems from an issue that was created by farmers trying to take territories away from indigenous peoples. Going against the federal constitution, they have set a date that dictates our rights to our ancestral territory. So despite the Constitution recognizing indigenous peoples as original inhabitants, they set a time frame where if we were not in possession of this territory after the adoption of the Constitution of 1988, we do not have the right to this territory. But it is our right. It is an original right. This is totally controversial in light of the genocide that the Brazilian state itself has committed against us as indigenous peoples in the forced withdrawal of territories to be able to establish large farms. As a result of these policies, today Brazil is one of the largest exporters of meat and soy, for example, for a large number of countries, including this one. So we're bringing this warning to say that there is no point in talking about how we are going to solve climate change without involving indigenous peoples in these decision-making conversations. There is still time before we reach the point of no return. As you can hear from Nada, she is fighting for her people's rights to their land in Brazil. This is first and foremost top of mind, above climate change and biodiversity. Hearing from her and the other Indigenous leaders who had traveled to New York to share their stories and perspectives was definitely a meaningful highlight and learning experience of the Nature Positive Hub. So another takeaway you and I discussed, Julia, was the juxtaposition uh, of both concern and hope when it comes to the carbon market. There are obviously major concerns around the state of the carbon market today. Um, This year, we had the Guardian article come out, this subsequent change of management at Vera, this historic dip in sales of nature-based carbon credits. These were all looming large, this conference, and these ongoing challenges that the market is facing in rebuilding trust and addressing um, legitimate concerns around quality in the market. Uh, But there's also, and this was very present at the conference, was this overarching sense of hope that exists in the nature-based solutions community and an immense amount of recognition of of the immense amount of work that's been done already uh, and is underway right now to address those quality concerns. So, Julia, you and I both had the opportunity to sit and listen to this panel about lifting the lid on high-quality nature-based solutions development that brought several established project developers together to talk about how projects are actually built. And my takeaway from that, 
uh, after hearing from several project developers that have been running at MBS for over a decade, is that we've learned so much about what works and what doesn't, and that there's a community of organizations out there that have done a lot of the learning for this. This combined with the groundswell of interest that we're seeing both from the investor side and the project developer side, just give me a lot of hope that we can move past a lot of these failings, learn from them for sure, but move past a lot of these shortcomings of the nature-based carbon markets going forward. Yeah, I would have liked to hear more specifics from that panel about lessons learned and what project developers are not doing anymore because we found out it didn't work as we intended. Carbon project developers and standards bodies themselves acknowledging projects that didn't work as intended and clearly communicating what they're doing differently now as a result would go a long way, I think, towards restoring trust in the market. And there are efforts underway to improve the market given these lessons learned. The Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market, or ICVCM, is a market-wide effort to raise the bar on supply-side quality by setting a standard that all registries and standards have to meet. In addition, Vera has released methodologies that incorporate new innovations like dynamic baselines, or baselines that update more regularly and compare project impact against an area that matches as closely as possible to the project area. This innovation is a major step forward for addressing concerns around additionality. So a clear articulation of what's being done now to address approaches that haven't worked in the past, along with acknowledgement of projects that haven't worked as intended, would go a long way, I think, to restoring confidence in the market. I actually happened to grab some time with Renal Koberger, the now former CEO of the world's largest project developer, South Pole, while at the Nature Positive Hub. For additional context, a New Yorker profile came out after Climate Week highlighting legitimate concerns about one of South Pole's projects, the Karipa Project in Zimbabwe, and interviewing Renault. There had been criticism of the Karima project prior to Climate Week in Bloomberg and other outlets. Renault has since stepped down as CEO of South Pole, but I asked him at Climate Week if he thought anything should be done differently to restore trust in nature-based projects. Here's what he said. Well, there have been some big challenges in the nature-based solution space recently. And so I'm curious, what do you think is needed to restore trust in the nature-based solutions and in, in the voluntary carbon market overall? Absolutely. So the problem with nature-based solutions is that they're some of the most complex projects that you have. I compare that now to other projects we do. We do, for example, energy efficiency or renewables or biogas or cook stoves or tech removals. The difference is all those projects I just mentioned typically have one single site. Like it's one cook stove here. It's one wind farm there. It's one biogas plant here. So the amount of stakeholders involved and the amount of complexity is much less. If you have a, a nature-based solution project, let's say in Brazil or in the DRC or in Indonesia, these are typically very, very big areas of land. with a lot of people involved. Sometimes ownership of the land is an issue. So you have a lot of complexity that can add to, to a lot of views on, the pro, on those projects. And that's a little bit what happened over the past couple of months. There was a lot, of, uh, a lot of views as to how the project is calculated. Does it add value to the communities? There's always somebody who might not be uh, happy about the project. So long story short, I think it, they're more vulnerable also to attacks compared to other types of projects. Now, this should not discourage us from continuing with these projects, but because putting a price on nature is still very, very important. We need a business case for protecting nature. I asked him again what should be done to restore trust, hoping for acknowledgement of what's gone wrong in the past and what's needed going forward. 
Do you think that something should change in the way that nature-based solutions projects are done to restore trust? Whether that's you know efforts like ICBCM or updating standards, use new DMRV, digital monitoring and reporting and verification. What should be different in order to you know, solve some of those challenges in the past? So all these efforts by a lot of very intelligent people are highly, highly welcome. But the big problem is actually another one. It's that like 15 years ago, we had the UN creating the rules of those markets. Back then under the Kyoto Protocol, the UN itself was essentially the ultimate source of trust. The methodologies, the standards, the approvals, they all came from the UN itself. And that created global uh, trust in the system. With the collapse of Kyoto Protocol, the UN has gone out as playing that role. And what should happen, in my opinion, is that under the Paris Agreement, specifically under Paris Agreement's Article 6, the UN should get back in and create the basic rules and principles as to how we account for forestry. Of course, also backing on national governments, determined baselines, and so on. If we had more robust regulation from governments of the UN, I think it would be much less likely that there would be such a massive cacophony of views and opinions about each every project. So long story short, once again, regulation is important. And I have, I'm really hoping also on COP28 that we're advancing on creating UN-level standards under Article 6, how to account. As you can hear, Renau puts the onus on the standards and regulation to fix the market, not on the actions of project developers. This has been a common response from project developers when critics have questioned the impact of carbon projects. I was hoping Renault would acknowledge South Pole's own lessons learned or mistakes in light of recent criticism. The tides may be changing, though. South Pole does seem to be taking the allegations of the Kariba project seriously. I'm quoting from their press release now from November 10th, in which they announced Renault would be stepping down. On 27th October 2023, South Pole announced it is determined to learn from the experience of working with the Kriba Red Plus project in Zimbabwe. At the core of this commitment is a focus on enhancing its group-wide quality and risk controls and due diligence processes. The board of South Pole believes this exercise will be best delivered by new senior leadership with the required experience to design and implement a comprehensive program of review, change in governance, and process improvements while also improving stakeholder engagement, trust, and communication. The interim and incoming leadership will receive full board support for their change of program, which includes enhancing quality assurance standards across South Pole's projects globally. They will also appoint a chief risk officer to oversee executive level risk management, conduct a thorough review of the company's carbon project portfolio, and seek expert external support to enhance project design, operation, and management, end quote. This definitely seems like a step in the right direction. I'm looking forward to seeing how South Pole evolves. Maybe we should have the new South Pole leadership on the pod in the future. The nature-based project type that has experienced the most criticism in the last year has been Red Plus, or reducing emissions from degradation and deforestation. The world cannot achieve its climate goals without stopping deforestation, and carbon finance plays a key role in compensating communities for protecting their forests and making those forests more valuable, alive, and cut down. Given the importance of stopping deforestation and the criticisms of Red Plus, there are numerous panels dedicated to the path forward for Red Plus. There was also a Red Plus panel where they were discussing criticisms and efforts to raise the bar 
Uh, but there wasn't consensus on the panel of how to do that or how much correction is necessary, which highlights this overarching market problem of lack of clarity on what's working and what's not. This puts a lot of pressure on efforts like ICVCM and updated standards to get it right so that trust is restored in these markets and we can move forward. It's clear that Red Plus has done some good, probably a lot of good, but how much and to what degree this maps on one-to-one to to emissions they're claiming to avoid is is still in question. Yes, and Joshua Tostason from Everland spoke to the benefits Red Plus has provided over the course of its history and the need for carbon markets to be more proactive in standing up for the good Red Plus has done, in addition to acknowledging that the current approach can and is being improved. Let's think about the last 15 years or so without this mechanism. Let's think about these real places with real people. And let's just think about what life would be like, people, the wildlife, and the forest, without any of these investments and without any of these people organizing themselves in partnerships with communities through this work. Would the world be better off or worse off? Would we have more emissions than we have? Would people be more prosperous? We'll have more alternatives. It's pretty obvious if you've ever set foot in any one of these places that the answer to that question is no, it would not be better off without that. So what's the story? The story is the world is definitely better off with red. Can it be improved? Yes. Is it being improved? Absolutely. But that is the story. As Joshua mentions in this clip, there are updated approaches to Red Plus on the market in the form of Art Trees and Vera's new consolidated Red Plus methodology that aim to address shortcomings of existing Red Plus methodologies. I'm hopeful that these updated methodologies will help to restore faith in this critical mechanism for forest protection, and that we as a society will not discard this important tool in our climate toolkit, but continue to work together to understand what's working and what's not and update our approaches accordingly. So to wrap up, New York Climate Week 2023 was not just the week of climate, but should have been rebranded to Nature and Climate Week. Yeah, our main takeaway is that indigenous peoples are critical to scaling nature-based solutions and increasingly have a seat at the table, as well as this juxtaposition of concerns with the state of the carbon market and increasing hope and expectations being put on policy and standards bodies to fix those issues. Um, These are conversations that I'm sure will continue as we move forward to COP28, where the focus on scaling markets, not just for carbon, but biodiversity and nature, will uh, continue to be a major agenda item. Yeah, we're all eager to see what comes out of COP28, and maybe we can do another episode with on-the-ground recordings. Let's just hope that we can get it out sooner than we did for this one. Thanks so much for joining, Morrison. It was great to have you on, and looking forward to our next field correspondent contributed episode. Thanks very much, Julia. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.